before we launch into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services by making innovative financial service tools available and accessible to all their customers. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Welcome back for part two of Hidden Truths, what leaders need to hear but are rarely told. We are joined again for part two, this time a shorter episode, but really impactful by David Fubini. Welcome back, David. I said we jump into two things today. One is, okay, you've got you firstly, you were wondering, should you go for the role, you get the role, you are prepared before you get in there, we shared how to do that, etc. in part one. Then we talked about the challenges, people aren't going to share the truth with you. You isolate yourself, many, many great examples David shared in part one. So what do you do? So next David talks about and by the way, we're only on chapter three, three of the book, adopt a constituent consciousness. I love even the language there. David says most new CEOs are shocked by sheer volume of demands on their time and attention, customers, channel participants, buy side and sell side and analysts, regulators, employer groups, suppliers, union organizations, alumni and retirees, vast numbers of politically connected groups, potential activists, and community leaders, all clamor for the CEO's time and attention. And that's even more pronounced when you get into the role into the office. Where do you get the time to think? You've just described the uh, the reality uh, of a, a new leader, and it isn't always just the CEOs as well, but you know, but for the most part, new CEOs. And the thing we said in the part one was how unprepared CEOs are often because when when they're coming up their career path, they never have what you just described. They don't have that huge number of constituencies that they're going to deal with. Now it hits them. So the very first thing you have to do is anticipate this, not be surprised by it. And you know, I, I, I remember uh, Dominic Castley was a um, colleague of Hubert's and mine at McKinsey. He goes off to uh, become the CEO of Willis, which was a, a very large insurance-oriented company. And he told me, David, I arrived, you know, being the great strategist that I was going to do these following things over the first four to five weeks. And my calendar was never mine. I, I just, I lost entire control of my calendar because all these people wanted to see me. They had to see me. I, 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 was, I was blown away by the number of constituencies I had to deal with. So the first thing to do is anticipate that that's going to happen. You have to know it's going to happen. It does because you're the leader. Everybody wants to come and talk to you about all the things that they think are so important. The second thing is you don't have to be the one to meet all these people. I mean, in some cases, there's a, a sense of, oh, look, at I'm the, I'm the most important person here. Of course, I have to be the one to see them all. Well, no, not so much. So, you know, that you have to step back and sort of say, look, at that's a pretty arrogant view of the world. You, you know, because by the way, many of these people might ask questions that you don't know the answers to. So why then meet with them? Go have them meet with the people that are the appropriate people that could ask actually address their question. So if it's a legal regulatory issue, yes, there's certain things that you certainly as a CEO have to see. But if not, go let the general counsel handle it. And he or she will sort of come in, come back to you if indeed it needs your help. If it's a major management question with unions, well, you're, let your head of HR, who probably knows more about this than you do, and let her go deal with it or him go deal with it. So, you know, triage and leverage. There's an, sort of an immediacy of saying, look, at, I'm, the big, I'm the big important person now. I have to do it. I would question that at every turn. You know, um, minor things that help. Get a chief of staff. 
you need somebody to actually help triage some of this stuff for you. And have if you have a chief of staff, you can say, look, it, I'd love to be with you. Have me with so-and-so first. Make sure that we have a sense of what your issue is and I have a chance to understand it, that we can be much more productive when we get together. It's not a put off. It's an actual way to say, we're going to have a better conversation. Meantime, you're getting, you're buying time. You're having somebody do some staff work. Before you have the meeting, the meeting can be shorter and more productive. Simple thing to do. But many CEOs will say, oh, well, I don't want a chief of staff or, you know, because that would be like, I'm sort of putting myself on a pedestal. I think this is, you know, just all, it's an incredible way to deal with the constituent issue. Um, and in some cases, you also get a grizzled veteran, um, maybe somebody who's a retired executive to sort of sit there and tell you, hey, which ones are really important here? Because they all look important. But, and you probably don't have a perspective to really know, but somebody else does. And don't think that, you know, you, you are omnipresent. Go find somebody who's been around for a little bit, been in the industry, knows the company, knows who's really important or not. And you can say, hey, look, is this one I really got to make time for because I don't have it? And he or she could say, oh, this is absolutely essential. Or no, this one can wait. That's a really helpful thing. These are things that most executives do not take the time to do. And you start off knowing that this is going to be required. And one of the things you often see, David, is I, I work as an exec coach as well. So many leaders are hovering on burnout or they've already burnt out and their their body just hasn't caught up and told them yet or they're not listening is another thing. So I share that to say like if you don't learn to delegate and also if you learn how to delegate before you get into the role, that's really useful as well, as you say, prepare beforehand. But you give a great case study here. You give examples of CEOs. You've anonymized some of these names, obviously. But this one was the story of Isabella, who took on everything for herself. And we often forget, you're still a human being, and it's going to take its toll. In this case, she she took the view that she was the omnipresent. She had to be the CEO. She had to see uh, all these people because all of them were hers to be seen. And as a result, um, one, she gets disconnected from her senior team, who, by the way, are feeling a little bit undervalued because if she's taking every meeting, why do you need your senior team? Yeah, I mean, one way you empower your senior team is to say, look, would you go handle this issue? You know, if I need to be drawn in, please, by all means, let me know. Um, but I empower them by saying to somebody, look at, and this is the key thing as a leader, say, I want you to go talk to this person because they know more than I do. And that's why you need to go talk to them. And if I need to get into it, please, I will. I'll learn more in the interim. That shows vulnerability, empathy, and you empower your own people. And it really results in a better outcome. Isabel did not do that. One of the things you talk about is also the physical shape that people get into because they no longer have time to fit in the gym. They don't prioritize it anymore. They feel well, what if people see me doing that? Because as you say, I was thinking one of the one of the really annoying things for me in life is the Kardashians. <laughs> <laughs> and while the show was on, my wife used to watch it, it used to torture me. But I often felt great empathy for them. And I was like, kind of going, so yes, they're multimillionaires, they've been extremely successful, etc. But literally, cameras following them around all their lives where do they get to be human, get to be themselves, etc. And you say also, this is what happens when you walk into the CEO role, all eyes are on you. And it's both one a power, a tool that you can use for role modeling, because that's the case, take advantage of it. 
Secondly, it is taxing. It's just incredibly taxing. So you've got to find a way to actually, you know, um, you know not hide, but sometimes break from that. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that um, several CEOs, and I, I believe it was John Watson at, at Chevron, uh, told me, you know, the thing that was most disturbing to him is he was a runner and he loved to run um, and he loved to be, and he was always in good shape. And he would say, I just, I physically could feel myself, you know, getting more out of shape because the, the demands of the job were so huge. And I got angry at myself for that. And I got angry at my staff and I really had to sort of reset myself and find time. And now, of course, he runs with, you know, colleagues when uh, in that who, who, you know, so they can do that. So he can actually have, you know, sort of semi-meetings while they're running, or he can find time for himself to do that because he's a better and more thoughtful leader by doing that. You know, so sometimes you have to help yourself, you know, become a better leader by honoring yourself. We'll talk about it maybe the next day about the idea of modeling behaviors and how powerful that is an underused tool that's so simple if you do use it, like looking after your own priorities, family first, all those type of things. But one of the, the things I wanted to get to because we, we want to get to change management, does that mean changing the management because that will be very relevant in these times that we're living in. But one of the things that we often do on the show, and I, I don't mean it in a non empathetic way, is critical of companies who have been disrupted. And oftentimes, it's because they've been blind to the truth, or didn't want to hear it, or didn't seek it out, or didn't know how to. But one of the examples you give of a company that was in free fall that went bankrupt in 2012 was Kodak. But you talked about the CEO at the time who came into that position while the company was in free fall, which was Jeff Clark. Jeff is training at Compaq, where he was the uh, CFO of Compaq and then helped lead the, uh, I came to know Jeff that, at that time because he was uh, leading uh, the, the merger of uh, Compaq and HP, um, which was a very challenging time. And so he, you know, he, he managed that quite successfully, uh, despite the challenges. And so I, I came to know of him. Um, and obviously, the Kodak story, here he comes into Rochester, um, you know, Kodak is, is in deep trouble, as we all can understand, traditional photography having come, come undone um, by digital. And, uh, and what do you do? I mean, what, what do you do? Um, and um, so I think the issue here was uh, that Jeff had to sort of say, look at, um, this is a really great role modeling example, is that amongst the things that the Kodak did really well was create um, the film that is used by the most powerful directors out there who don't want to do digital films, but rather want to actually film on actual, you know, uh, celluloid or some version of whatever the heck they use uh, that Kodak produces film. And um, everybody was giving him advice that says, look, you have to cut, 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 cut. Um, and, and he said, well, wait a moment. Um, I want to go talk to the directors who use this film and say, if I stop producing this as Kodak, you won't get this from anywhere else. And how challenging would that be? And the universe, the, you, when he went out there and started to talk to these constituents, and he talked to the, the, you know, the name directors who you all know, who are famous in terms of these major movies they make, they said, no, no, you understand, we, we, will, we want this film. This film is an absolute essential about of how we actually do our craft. And 
you must keep it. Um, it, it would really be harmful if you did it. And he went back to his team and said, look, I've listened to them in a way that they've convinced me that this is the right thing to do. So I'm going to keep this. And the Kodak people were like, oh, my God, he's honoring the craft of what we create. So it gave him ability to one, keep something that was central, still central to crafts being. But on the other hand, unsaid is he also had the credibility to make a lot of other much, much tougher decisions because he had been, he said, look, and I understand the value here, but here there's no value and we are going to let things go. And he did. And now, and so it was for a while, very successful. He unfortunately, you know, couldn't stop the inevitability of that, of the challenge of Kodak. And it does eventually get dismembered. But the point is to the story is that he said, look, I can change by really understanding who we are and who we historically have been, go listen to my customers and don't just go on finance alone. And, and, you know, but I'm really hearing it. And then I buy credibility for everything else I had to do. A great other exception you share in the book, and hopefully we'll get to it in our part three, uh, it, when we do part three, is the story of Corning as well, where you, you, you talk about role modeling with R&D to your organization, which is an absolutely great story. We won't have time for that one today, but let's get on to, before we get on to change management, I thought it was interesting, I thought it was important to share some ways to address the constituencies, because you say here, no simple formula exists for dealing with constituencies, context differences, varying skill sets of management teams, the veracity of the issues surrounding the company, the state of play of the industry, the nature of concerns of the day, all create distinctive complexities. The only thing that's certain in all these situations is that CEOs will have too many groups to deal with in a timely fashion. This delay between message sent and receiving the message back is a huge problem. And oftentimes you see that, like you said, when a CEO gets into a new role, everybody's looking up at the office going, when are they going to come down like Moses with the tablets with the new strategy, etc. And, and, and in that period, because there's no story, they create their own story. And this is really dangerous. And this is happens all the time. And one of the things that you often have to say uh, is to, to CEOs is that a void will be, you know, it's physical. This is a physical reality. If you have a, a, a vacuum, it will get filled and it will get filled with rumor and, 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 and so uninformed, you know, speculation by management. So don't allow vacuums to exist. You know, give them, an, you know, at least some sense of uh, that one, you, you recognize that there is a vacuum and two, there's at least a process by which you're actually addressing it. So therefore, people will settle down. Um, you know, this, that, because otherwise you're going to have all this rumors and, and, and uh, speculation, which is not helpful. But back to the constituencies, I think what you're trying to say is, well, how do we address that? Well, first is come knowing that this is going to happen, anticipate it, have a process, have a plan. You know, don't, don't just sort of walk, walk in on day one and say, oh my God, my calendar is entirely filled for the next three weeks. You know, you have to anticipate that. Um, and this is the point also of you empower your own people by making sure that they be the lead persons rather than you, because you're also showing empathy because you're saying, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. So-and-so can help us. Let's work on it together. Go talk to him or her. Um, that's really important. Um, and you'd also need a sort of a standardized approach, which says, look, at, here's how we're going to deal with these issues. So you go to your team and say, 
you're going to be asked tons of people want to see and get questions answered. Here's an approach that we'll use so that we have a repeatable process rather than making it up every time. Because the, the moment you meet with one organization um, you know, out of the blue and you tell another one, no, we're not going to do it that way, they'll say, well, what's, why am I different than that other organization? So you want to have the similarity. And as I said earlier, you, you really do want to have some grizzled veteran who can say, look, this is what's important, what's not, because you won't know. You will not know. I was thinking about, you know, the character that's often in the comics and a cigar hanging out the side of the mic, kind of going, not available. <laughs> well, but it's it's the sage counselor that says, hey, look at, um, I, I was there for 20 years. Let me tell you that those five, that, that, those five constituencies are people that are always there. They're always asking. They'll never be satisfied. They could be delayed. This, on the other hand, could be, you know, um, a death blow if you aren't talking to them. So let's move from constituencies to some contentious issues, which is change management itself. And you tell us, David, you were great friends with the late Jack Welsh, when he was in Boston, you spent a lot of time together, you had lunches, I thought it was fascinating that you had that time, which you must have learned so much. But he, from those times with him, there was a key message that came from a piece of wisdom that originated with a chat between you two. I'd love you to share this. I don't understand my uh, my knowledge of Jack. He 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 lived in Boston. Boston is a small town. We all kind of get to know each other. I had the pleasure of getting to know him. Uh, yes, we we would definitely have lunches uh, and go to we went to a few Red Sox games together. As he was a great lover of the that sport, um, and and we spent time even after he left and went to New York before his death. Um, but one on one of those occasions. Um, I asked his advice about change, you know, how you think about uh, driving change in organizations. And he, he said, uh, and I attribute this to him, I'm almost certain he was the one who said it. He said, look at David, change management starts with changing the management. And I thought, you know, how brilliant that was, because if I think back over the time of leading transformative change and advising around transformative change with many, many organizations, ultimately it is kickstarted by you have to have the right team in place. And if you don't have the right team in place, the change never happens. And so, yes, changing the management, as harsh as it sounds, is almost essential for driving fundamental transformative change. It is just the nature of the human interactions and management that you rarely can change things radically by using the existing team. And you know, you're a product of sports teams. You know, if I tell you that you're suddenly going to play in an entirely different way, you're going to tell me we have the wrong players to play that way. You're going to have to play, change the players. Same way in a management team. If you're going to play entirely differently, you're going to have to change the, um, the management, not just because of skills, but because of basically inertia. There's a belief that the way we've been doing things have been working. So uh, that's why really fundamentally, and it is controversial, to say this, because even in, in the world I now live in, in this building with lots of other faculty, there's a belief that says, no, you can invest in their team. You can bring them along. You, you train them. It, it, it will, and the reality is it rarely works. So if you look at when most new leaders come into an organization, they change the management. It's a tough one, but it's so true. I mean, we, we, work, we work in change management and it's very difficult. People get stuck in their ways very quickly. They get comfortable. 
the status quo by its very nature does not give up without a fight even if they don't think they're fighting they often do by what they do but also more by what they don't do but there was a line david i loved the clear priority for a ceo embarking on major shifts is to have the right people in place to make a big change successful indeed the exact nature of a plan change is less important than knowing you have the people to execute the change because what I'm talking about here is most times somebody gets into the role, they'll spend all the time on the strategy, but that it's not about the what, it's often about the how. And again, it's one of these lessons I, I took from the book is it reflects like for an hour before each show that I, I do here, I'll work on my state, my mental state, my I'll prime myself. That's what part of it, getting these pins is about, etc. It gets me in the right headspace and I'll reflect on my notes Equally, if I'm doing a keynote, etc, I'll work on my state, I'll do breathing, I'll feel relaxed, I'll go through a process, it's like going into a game. And I, and I often think, well, that's often what's missing in executive roles of any level is, it's not awful about what you're doing, it's about how so even feedback, like in McKinsey, you spend a lot of time in how to give constructive feedback, not only how to give it, but how to receive it constructively as well. This state is so important for the work that we do. You've described it wonderfully, uh, in the same way that uh, leaders have to understand that they have to, you know, prepare for and, and then enact differences. And so they have to be thoughtful about that. And they need to have the point is that they cannot prescribe every act and every sequence and every process that will have to get changed. They have to have a group of people that they know will have a similar view to them, have a North Star that they're shooting for and will work on it collectively. And they'll make, they'll, they'll, they'll have to, they'll make uh, decisions that are wrong and they'll have to do mid course corrections, but they do it because they now have a common view. And that common view is because you've taken the time to have that understanding before you go. Unbelievably difficult to do if you have an, a, a, a team of non-believers or people who have been tied to the history, you know, um, you know the, back to the Kodak example of Jeff Clark, he brought in a number of people to help him through that transformative change. It still wasn't enough because fundamentally there, the context was just too overwhelming. And he had, you know, the whole of Rochester was was totally focused on on a, on a on a on a on a product that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, none of us take traditional film anymore. So sometimes there's even outside issues that you you can't overcome. But this one is important. Um, most leaders want to bring in their own team because they they that's the only way they get what you just said you feel at the beginning of a of a of a session. But remember, for them, it's a team sport. They have to bring in a team of people to make this happen. You, you thankfully only have to worry about yourself. You know, it, it, it's, it's how do you build that same sense, but in a team environment. So David, at this stage, I'm sure some people who did not want to hear that have tuned out. But let's talk about this, because th this is the contentious issue. There's a trade off. And the trade off is, what about all that institutional knowledge? What about all those relationships in place? What about the know how that what the territory is really like, etc. Because I'd be a little bit like that and kind of go, Oh, that's a lot to lose. Ooh, that's gonna be very costly versus speed like you talk about. Absolutely. And this is always almost the first thing that comes up and says, Well, we have to keep so and so because their, their, their institutional knowledge is so great. Well, the truth is, 
that institutional knowledge is an institutional knowledge, not an individual set of knowledge. And by the way, their chief lieutenants probably have that knowledge better and more substantively than the individual that we're speaking about, because this is usually, it's not just embodied in one person, that they, that one person is a staff or a group of people below them that are probably more steeped, more knowledgeable, and frankly, less asked about their knowledge than the individual that you're sort of sort of worried about. So to me, my answer always is, I'm not that worried because their second order group of people behind them behind them will now feel empowered to come forward. They probably know more than their boss did, and they'll be more willing to and more desirous to make change. So actually, I think it's a win-win as opposed to a lose-lose. Let's give one last story, which is two sides of the coin here about moving fast versus moving slow. I'll tee you up here with a couple of excerpts. You say, given all the effort that precedes a management change and the positive expectations that the shareholders and the company hope to enjoy as a result of that change, being forceful and action oriented is crucial. Unfortunately, some new CEOs fall into the trap of being overly cautious and adopting incremental change, which leads us to what you call the allure of changing slowly and the dangers. You say the fastest way to undermine a change effort is to allow the resistance to gain a foothold. The inertia, in other words, can grow to unmanageable proportions in very short timeframes. Many significant corporate losses can be traced back to such inertia. One of the most famous occurred when General Motors was experiencing a steady decline in the 1980s under the tenure of Roger Smith. Well, again, we're going back in history to prove the present day um, situation uh, because Roger Smith uh, came up through the finance staff um, he was not an operator. Uh, and, and so the, the theory was, um, you know, even though General Motors was starting to have, you know, significant issues with Japanese manufacturers and, um, and for that matter, you're, you know, evolving European manufacturers, um, it didn't, it needed a change, uh, but uh, it didn't need an outsider. And so what they did is they went to and they brought in uh, Bob Stemple to, to replace uh, Roger Smith. Uh, Bob Stemple was different than Roger because he came up to the operations side. He was a he was a manufacturing guy. So you know, of course, that that'll be the change we need. That's not you know in in some cases you know what what's going to drive a lot of change because even though Bob did a massive reorganization of the company, you know he didn't bring in a lot of you know new new people into the organization, and he felt he fell short just the same way Roger did because again you're relying on you know, traditional car-oriented General Motors historical executives. And uh, even though different orientation, still internal candidate, still continues the GM history, and it floundered. You know, not, not a great example of a, turn, of a major transformative event. Um, and indeed, uh, it wasn't until uh, his replacement um, that they started thinking about going outside. And frankly, it took them several more CEOs before they brought an outsider in. So let's contrast that slow approach with same industry we will stick in the automotive in industry this time in Ford. And this was Mark Fields following on the relatively successful period that Alan Mulally enjoyed in the role. This was 2014. Again, I don't um, pretend to know all the details here uh, about Ford and Mark Fields specifically. But, um, you know, you can go back and read. The fact is that th there's no doubt that as a result of this change, you know, here you're bringing in somebody with a very different perspective 
um, you know, who actually says, look, at, let's deal with the reality of where we are. Let's question the fundamental principles that the automotive you know, industry was operating on with regard to uh, Detroit and its fundamental mindset. And as a result, he was able to drive, you know, substantive change for a long period of time that, uh, frankly, uh, most of the car companies in Detroit were not able to do. So I think the, the point here is that you bring in somebody with a different mindset. He brings a lot of people in with him, in this case, that don't think like the traditional automotive people in Detroit think, and that success is enjoyed as a result. So uh, as I say, you know, when you're, I mean, Kinsey, you spend all your time on one, you know, one company, and I, I don't know the competitor as well as I do the company I was serving, but certainly this is a story that goes on and says there's great success here. Even he and Ford does struggle as all uh, automotive companies do. So, you know, nobody's, your, your listeners might say, yeah, but look at Ford, it's still not. Yeah. The point is at the time they made a major transformative event uh, that was unusual relative to the others. One of the things you say in that respect was bringing in your own team like that. There can be criticism about that. And I've mentioned this myself. It's like in sport where manager comes in, brings in all the backroom staff with him or her. And the thing you say they're bringing, though, is trust, because it takes a long time to develop that trust, whether it's in the fact that you won't go and send an email down to somebody within the organization complaining about my style, or it can be I can trust on you to deliver as well. So that's a crucial aspect that we won't have time for. I'd love to share one more thing, because this is very relevant to our audience, which is M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So you acquire an organization or you merge with that organization, you have duplicate roles, people start to ask multiple questions, will it be me or the other guy? And this can be an absolute mess. You tell a brilliant case study about a major merger. And this is the case study of American Airlines. This is a great example of, um, of the notion of how do you create a new a new perspective uh, as, a, as an acquirer. So the story is, uh, when you look at the history of the airline industry, almost uh, all major U.S. airlines have gone bankrupt. American had for years been able to forestall the need to go to into bankruptcy, uh, and they it too succumbed. Uh, as a result of that, U.S. Airways was able to, um, as a far smaller airline and not nearly as broad a, uh, a root structure of an airline, actually intervene and convince the bankruptcy course and the creditors that they should acquire American Airlines and did indeed acquire it. So it's the, the classic minnow buying the whale. And, and Doug Parker, who is at this time now uh, the head of the CEO of, uh, of US Airways, formerly had worked at American Airlines, this is important to the story, um, you know, is now uh, the head of both airlines. So the question now is, well, are you gonna have a blended management team or are you gonna have an individual uh, a management team that is largely driven by the team that was leading U.S. Airways that, uh, that in this case, Doug had worked with for some time. And Doug made it very clear early on that this was going to be the team that he had worked with. And he went to his team and he said, look, we're not going to do this deal unless you're coming with me. And I want you all to come with me because I, I want you all to be the team that's going to drive this new, um, uh, this new airline. And indeed, uh, that's what happened here, uh, because it was the band of, of, of many cases, like Band of Brothers, borrowing from um, another term that's been used in other um, cinematic efforts, um, and one. And the one was at least 
uh, who was the uh, the one male, uh, non-male in this group of five uh, people who had worked together. And this team had, had figured out how to work together, and they were going to take over uh, uh, the management of now the combined airline. But Doug did two other interesting things. He, well, on the day of his, the announcement, or close to the announcement of the deal, he said, I am moving our headquarters to Dallas, which is where American was. Not only am I moving the headquarters, this group is coming with me. And by the way, here is the house I bought. Here's where my kids will go to school. And by the way, importantly, here's the church I will be joining. And everybody at American Airlines heaved a huge sigh of relief that said, okay, he understands us. You know, he understands the importance of Dallas and he understands the importance of actually bringing forward that perspective to the airline. And um, he also did choose several uh, other American Airlines people to be on his senior staff eventually, including, most importantly, the former CIO at American Airlines, who goes on to be one of the most brilliant CIOs in, 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 America, in the, uh, the airline industry. So he had one or two people from American. But so the whole story here is that you have somebody who's really thinking through the team that they need to drive a major organization. He wants his team. He puts his team in place, but at the same time recognizes that in doing so, he has to be mindful of the constituents that he's going to try and drive change from. And it was, and, and um, in many cases, a textbook example of great success uh, of an integration. And as you say, and you cover that in depth in that chapter, change requires empathy, clarity and courage. David, that's all we're going to have time for again today. Unfortunately, it goes too fast. It's been an absolute pleasure, man, as ever. Where can people find you again? I'll share in that in the show notes. But for people who are just listening to us, where can they find you? Please go to the Harvard website on the Harvard uh, faculty, just put in um, you know, my name, I'll pop up and you can send me an email. And I'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for taking the time to have me be with you today. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Author of Hidden Truths, What Leaders Need to Hear But Are Rarely Told, David Fubini. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling customers to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. See you very soon for part three of Hidden Truths with David Fubini.